1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Connor Lucy. Connor is Associate Professor in Architectural History at University College Dublin in Ireland, and we're talking to Connor today about a really important and beautiful book that he has recently edited, published by Four Courts Press, entitled House and Home in Georgian Ireland. Spaces and Cultures of Domestic Life. Connor, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on today. Many thanks for the invitation. Now, as I said, this is a really extraordinarily lavish book. It's on a big theme, House and Home in Georgian Ireland. It's published by Four Courts, who are really the go-to publisher for almost anything to do with 18th century Ireland now. But before we jump into discussing the book itself... Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I had a sort of a
0: long circuitous route into architectural history. Um, when I left school, I originally went to uh, art college. I went to the National College of Art and Design and I graduated and worked as, in graphic design for a decade. Um, as a student, my strongest suit was always history of art. And um, in fact, it was probably one of the reasons why I ended up with a reasonably good a GPA in my undergraduate degree. Um, my studio work was always a little bit uneven. So uh, I always had in the back of my mind that I might go back to history of art. My father was an architect and we spent, you know, childhood holidays, uh, visiting everything from, uh, you know, country houses to modern uh, schools across Ireland and, and in Europe as well. So, uh, I'd always had an interest in architecture. It was sort of beaten into me in some senses, um. And, uh, I looked around for, uh, you know, ways out of a career in design. A number of my, my friends at, uh, art college had, uh, gone back into college, into university to do master's programs. And so I, I took a cue from that and I looked around and found an MA course in, um, Palladian architecture at UCD, um, run by, uh, Michael, Professor Michael McCarthy and uh, Professor Christine Casey. And it was really under under Christine Casey that my uh, interest uh, developed and she encouraged me to go on and and do a PhD, which I did under her supervision. And so that was really the route into um, architectural history. And I suppose specifically 18th century, I'd always been interested in Dublin. I mean, I, I grew up in Dublin. I've lived here most of my life. And I was always sort of fascinated by the, you know, the, the sort of grain of the the historic city, the streets and squares. And while a student under Christine, I learned that many of them were uh, not designed by architects. And, and while there was a kind of a an autocratic landowner involved in terms of the layout and and the the scale, uh, the individual houses were built by these communities of bricklayers and carpenters. So wanted to know more about that. And so my PhD research was on the building industry in the second half of the 18th century and its relationship to neoclassicism, which is a kind of monolith in art history. You know, it's the kind of great revival of classicism from the middle of the 18th century. And it's usually seen as a sort of symptom of a number of things, but including grand tourism um, and I, so as I was always wondering, I wondered how builders and carpenters and plasterers who'd never made a grand tour could understand this classical style and, and how they might um, translate it into uh, a building typology that the brick urban house, which is so much a feature of cities like Dublin and Limerick and of course, London and Bristol and, and so on. So that that was really the beginning of it. Um my interest in, in urban domestic architecture then was both uh, I was interested in both the insides and outsides, um, and in fact, um, it was while I was a doctoral student here at UCD that I had an opportunity to design a seminar module for undergraduate students, and so I decided uh, I would put together a module on the design of the domestic interior, um, and I suppose like I, it, it rather than simply talking about Ireland for which there's you know, uh, there is a, a body of, of literature but not not very extensive. I sort of broadened it to include Britain and and Europe as well, Northern Europe and as I looked around I, I saw that there was quite a number of new directions in terms of the literature. So for example uh, a, a literature on the representation of uh, interiors uh, domestic interiors in both uh, paintings and in Uh, fiction. Um, And then there's, I suppose, more complicated ways of thinking about uh, gendered use of space and so on. So I kind of put all of that together uh, as as a sort of a seminar. At the same time, I, I was also teaching at the National College of Art and Design for the MA in Design History and Material Culture. And I initially designed a module that looked at the urban house, but later on, I think I taught there for about seven years. Uh, Later on, I changed that and uh, designed a sort of a graduate module around um, domestic space uh, and focusing on kind of methodology more specifically, uh, bringing out that kind of more, um, I suppose, theoretical or conceptual ways of thinking about it. Um, And it was then, and this is around, let's say, well, it must be 10, at least 10 years ago, Um, I started to think about a book that would look at um, the Irish urban house and the different rooms within the typical house. If we think of a house in Marion Square, for example, you've got the ground floor, which would have a dining room. And then you've got above that, you've got drawing rooms and above that, you've got bedrooms. And above that, you've got the garret for children and maybe a live-in servant or two and so I started to think about a book that might look at these individual spaces and not just about how they looked, but how they were kind of used. And there's quite a lot already in the literature on the design of, of rooms and how rooms looked and how a dining room might be designed or decorated differently from a drawing room. Um, but I wanted to get into the kind of um, following the kind of British and European and also and um, more specifically, maybe the American literature, which is very rich, um, to look at about how, how spaces were used. Um, that went kind of into abeyance. Um, I, I published a couple of individual chapters and articles. Um, over the years, and um, it sort of resurfaced. And so my initial uh, idea was to write a monograph. Um, but in the in the in the interim between kind of teaching and uh, uh, in the kind of early late 2000s, early 2010s, uh, coming to the down to do the book, there was. Or I looked around and found there was a lot of really interesting research out there, um, including, um, for example, Emma O'Toole, who, in fact, I was um, on her uh, doctoral, I was on her in her VIVA for her, her, her PhD. I was the internal examiner. And this wonderful thesis on the kind of material culture of maternity in the 18th century, a topic that I would never have thought of. Um, And at the same time, then, Claudia Kinmont, who's all probably well known to some of your listeners, but um, one of the probably one of the only uh, people really looking at uh, the kind of living conditions of the rural poor. Uh, she brought out um her new book um on uh, country furniture and furnishings. Uh, it's a it's a long sweep I think it's 1750 to 2000 but a really rich um study of of uh, of that. And so I thought well that's another topic I'd never touch uh in in my with my blinkers on about urban housing. So I thought maybe I should convene a conference and and see what comes out of it. So that was the kind of impetus to do that. We were kind of in the middle of COVID anticipating coming out of it, um, which didn't transpire. So we went online, but that had the virtue then of, of generating a huge audience. And, uh, one, lots of people, uh, chipping in, 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 conversation online and um, as awkward as that can be. Um, and at the end of it, I thought, well, I think, I, I think I have an edited book here. Um, so rather than, um, a monograph which would be very narrow and um, I had this sort of editor collection which looked at much wider range of subjects and topics.
1: That's great Connor. and of course Emma and Claudia contribute chapters to this volume as well don't they we? which um, are, are some of the highlights. Uh, it's interesting that the conference attracted such a big audience because of course Georgian spaces are such a big deal in Ireland generally but in Dublin in particular aren't they? Uh, and you've been involved in a number of societies and organisations that have been making efforts to preserve, conserve uh, and popularise some of those spaces too.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, since I kind of ventured into the kind of 18th century uh, space, if you like, um, I've always done uh, tours, talks, a uh, whole range of activities for people pretty much all of the, the kind of major advocacy groups um, in in Ireland, uh, from the Dublin Civic Trust, uh, the Irish George Society, of which I'm now a board member. Um, I recently joined the Castletown Foundation, which is kind of responsible for curating and managing uh, that great house out in County Gildare. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's always been a... a, a, a was that something, a way of kind of putting back, if you like, or putting some of that research back into the public domain. Another thing that I've done quite a lot, um, and uh, I, was, I was president of the Royal Society of Antiquaries for uh, a number of years, and they own a, a wonderful house on Marion Square. So I was always keen to open that up um, to tours um, and uh, as well part of the um, annual Open House Architecture Festival, which is run by Architecture. Um, uh, architecture Ireland, I think it's called. Um, so yes, I think I, I, I'm interested in outreach in that respect as as a way of kind of generating interest in and understanding. Um, I suppose not not just that these are kind of buildings uh, in a landscape, but that they were homes where people lived. And I think if you can get people interested in that aspect. Of, of the buildings, that, um, there's a greater chance for their survival um, into the next, you know, centuries.
1: Great. Now, the, the subtitle for this book, um, Spaces and Cultures of Domestic Life, resonates with uh, much of you of what you've just been describing about your own interests. But here in this book, you've gathered material from your own uh, writing, but also from, I think, eight or so colleagues in the field. Some of them very established names, other other names, um, newer, very exciting, cutting edge uh, work. How does this book, House and Home in Georgian Ireland, fit into the scholarly landscape that, that you've been describing for us?
0: Yeah, um, I suppose I, I saw this book as an analog, a sort of Irish analog to an already very established scholarship uh, for the British House, for the American House, for the European House. And um, uh, how, how am I going to put this? I suppose I've spent the last nearly 20 years going to international conferences and um, talking about Irish houses and Irish architecture, Irish interiors. And everyone goes, oh, that's really interesting. I never thought of that. And it becomes kind of a bit annoying after a while. Um, you know, you kind of think that, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the British Atlantic, studies, and uh, everyone sort of seems to sort of hop over Ireland to get to America, and everyone in America hops over Ireland to get back to Britain. I spent two years as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, and really people had no idea that, um, you know, that there were houses of any kind of caliber or interest in 18th century Ireland. You know, they just assumed that everyone was poor and grubbing around uh, in the dirt and you know the couple of people obviously were familiar with it but the broader picture was that you know and i find this a lot i mean i go to conferences uh, in the uk a lot and uh, in a lot of conferences in the us as well over the years and no matter how many times you kind of bang on that door it never seems to fully open so you know you pick up these books and i'm reading them and i'm saying oh you know they're often using Irish examples, you know, um, Castletown or Lady Louisa Connolly or the Lennox Sisters correspondence. That often comes up, but they of, often neglect to mention that this is, these are Irish houses. or And I know there's a complication around what is Irish and what is British and so on. Um, so I suppose I was keen to kind of... Um, I've always been keen to plug into these things and to represent, if you like, um, in some sense, uh, or to bring, introduce the sort of Irish dimension to it. Um, And I have, in fact, contributed to um, a couple of edited collections um, in recent years. So, you know, trying way of getting it in. But there's no sort of... uh, I I felt that there was a sort of... um, a gap in the literature and um, we, we've got a, a very good, uh, uh, and the, you know, there's obviously uh, some very good, uh, books and authors out there. I mean, I think the Patricia McCarthy study on the country has Christine Casey's edited book on the town House, which brought together, um, a number of very interesting, uh, includes a very number, number of very interesting essays, um, on, uh, topics of, you know, domestic life. But I thought that, um, it was time for a book on devoted specifically to the Irish uh, story, if you like. I mean, it's not written in isolation. A lot of the authors are bouncing back and forth, particularly with Britain, understandably, but sometimes a little bit further afield as well. So that was really the kind of impetus
1: for it. Fantastic. Now, you, you mentioned there uh, the range of buildings that can be considered within Georgian Ireland. I think one of the very striking things about the book is that there is this emphasis, inevitable emphasis, I suppose, on very high-status building, um, and also an emphasis, a very important chapter, on the rural poor, um, and the, the the cabins that are often described in 18th to early 19th century sources. You've also got a very interesting chapter on um, houses of the middling sort, let's say, in places like Drogheda, uh, the use of pattern books and so on. Tell us a little bit about the range of building that the book describes and why that's important.
0: Yes, well, uh, as a, you know, the, actually the the chapter on Draughta was an, another example of uh, a, just a recent graduate uh, of Trinity College, um, Dublin, Ashley Durkin, and I was I was actually the external examiner for her PhD thesis. So there's another uh, example of how you know just in the kind of everyday you know, academic life, you come across new scholarship. And, um, mm-hmm. and so, yes, I mean, I think when we, th- we, we when you we think of Georgian Ireland or Georgian Dublin or Georgian Limerick, we, we tend to think of the big country house, it's the most sort of obvious thing. And after that, then we think of the, the grand square and uh, the big, tall, uh, individually owned houses. And. Um, and it seemed to me that this, uh, as I said, you know, there's this research by, uh, people like Claudia Kinmont on rural cabins, Ashley Durkin on merchant houses and my own chapter on, uh, apartment living, um, that these were things that were not, uh, in the literature on Georgian, uh, domestic architecture. Um, but there are a feature of, you know, the American literature, for example, which, um, And a book that was very important for me is Bernard Herman's uh, Townhouse, published, I think, about 2005, which was a great sort of inspiration in terms of how each individual chapter uh, looks at a different kind of dwelling. He starts off with a sort of a a large house in Norfolk, Virginia, and goes all the way down the sort of social ladder, if you like, to um, this sort of uh, domestic accommodation for uh, an enslaved person. So you get a very rich cross section of life in the American town. So, um, I suppose I took advantage of what was out there in terms of, you know, Claudie Kinmont, uh, Ashling Durkin, um, uh, and, and I suppose also then just the kind of more nuanced ways of thinking about the grand house, you know, Judith Hill's essay, which explores how, you know, uh, uh, a family in the wake of the active union uh, used architecture and, you know, furniture and so on to announce their kind of British identity as much as their Irish identity. And um, so I was I was looking for new ways of thinking about it. And I think the the, the broader range of dwelling um, was, you know, just I, I suppose I was lucky in the sense that that was sort of um, available uh, to me. Just, just by looking around and seeing what was happening, I mean, it is, it is a small community of architectural historians, uh, particularly the 18th century um, in Ireland. So I think um, it, it sort of shows, I think, that there is a, a healthy interest in broadening the kind of narrative around domestic life of this period.
1: Very good.
0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Now, the the emphasis on life, Connor, is fascinating there, isn't it? Because one of the big themes across chapters in this book is a theme of the use to which rooms may be put or entire buildings, uh, how that use can change over time, the ways in which these buildings or rooms within them can be furnished whether furnishing is bought, new, second-hand, or hired, uh, as in the case of some of the um, maternity-lying-in furniture. Um, I mean, just tell us a little bit about that. Obviously, there's a range of dwellings described in the book, from the poorest to the most elite. How are people in this period thinking about furnishing? What kinds of furnishings are available to them? What does that furnishing mean or do for them in different ways?
0: Oh, well, that's... uh... (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's a big question um
0: i suppose how do i go about answering that i suppose one of the the kind of fascinating things about this period is first of all uh you know you get a there's a, a growth in the range of furniture types that become available um and those are also i think uh one of the kind of interesting things that comes out of uh for example, the chapter on maternity, as you say, is how furniture was rented for particular occasions. And um, so, I think I think what comes across uh, in the book as a whole in terms of furniture um, is, first of all, I suppose how important it can be for you know social display and for kind of um, I suppose um, creating a sense of. Um, decorum in the home, the kind of sense of a kind of appropriate, you know, your, your home is fitted out, uh, suitable to your social station, but also I think more on a more practical level, just how uh, the use of, of furniture um, and the use of uh, consumer goods. Um, one of the things that was quite striking, I think, uh, from Toby Barnard's essay was, um, uh, and his, uh, his essay on ceramic wares was how, you know, again, when we think about the 18th century dinner table, uh, we think of these great services and these kind of painted services that come from, you know, Europe or from from Britain. Um, but in fact, the vast majority of uh, goods and, and ceramic wares that are in the home are for everyday use. Uh, and so they're of a, a lesser quality. Um, and I suppose, again, I suppose I was interested in, And I've long been interested in that kind of idea about how the home is often seen as something that is about, as I said, you know, displaying one sort of social station. And of course, the home was a very important place for sociability throughout the 18th century. I mean, there are the kind of new spaces for leisure uh, that emerge in this period, assembly rooms and so on. Uh, But the home remained very important. So the, the dressing and decoration of the home um, is, is, is very important. And we know that from uh, the amount of money that's spent on on the kind of public reception rooms, dining rooms and drawing rooms and so on, at the expense that goes into furnishing and decorating those rooms. Um, but in the chapter on uh, maternity, in Toby Barnard's chapter on ceramic wares, and of course, you know, right at the bottom end of the scale, um, in uh, Claudia's chapter on the rural poor, uh, we get a sense of the everyday use of goods and items and of furniture and of how it's kind of adapted over time and, and how uh, things that are broken are mended and uh, and all of that. So it's, it's difficult to get at a lot of that when you're looking at the sort of sources that historians use, you know, the kind of um, probate inventories which kind of document or, or list out goods uh, contained in rooms. And, you know, they're, they can be quite unreliable in terms of of um, uh, of, of what what they're actually telling you about <laughs> uh, particular spaces. But at the same time, you know, you can find, for example, you know, a lot of in in dining rooms, you might get mention of of uh, you know sideboards with brass backs and and uh, candle holders, and you can imagine the light flickering on the back of that uh, to kind of bounce light around the room. Uh, and then you've got too much. And then you look at the expense of, you know, plate glass mirrors uh, for for dining rooms. And um, again, the expense put into uh, particular rooms uh, on my chapter on uh, kind of single man's dwellings. um, I think at the very beginning, I point to the fact that, you know, there's a whole range of. Uh, specifically gendered furniture that becomes available. So you know shaving tables that are designed specifically for all of the accoutrements needed for shaving. and uh, and equally then you get the the opposite version of that, the ladies' dressing table and and um, gaming tables, uh, card playing tables. and um, if the the the, the late eighteenth century in particular is a play, is a time when there's a huge range of furniture and furnishings available. Uh, for all sorts of optimistic activities, both, you know, every day and uh, uh, and uh, more kind of uh,
1: uh, sociable, I suppose. So we've talked a little bit about economic status, let's say, or political status, shaping the ways in which people think about home or what a home might be for or what a home might contain. Um, one of the things that you hint at in the book is that, different religious confessions might think about the home or the house as a space in different kinds of ways. It's not a big theme in the book, but it's something you draw readers attention to. And perhaps it's something you'd like to think out loud about now.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, um, uh, at the conference, uh, I was very lucky, uh, that I had Sarah Foster, um, from Cork and, uh, I, I have known Sarah a number of years and I knew she'd been working on uh, the Quaker home, uh, the early 19th century Quaker home. Uh, she she did a lot of work on um, uh, a family, uh, actually, um, an American Quaker who married a Cork Quaker and they lived in Philadelphia. And she kept a diary of her visit to Ireland in the 1810s to visit uh, her in-laws. And she was shocked and amazed at how the cork quakers were living in very very grand in a very very grand manner and she enumerates the kind of contents of rooms unfortunately by the time she gets to dublin she's kind of exhausted herself so she limits herself to very limit uh, you know very few uh, descriptions uh, but sarah gave a, a wonderful paper which touched on how religious confession might intersect with you know how richly you might appoint your home and also the contradictions uh, inherent in something like that unfortunately um it, it doesn't appear in the book but it seemed to me to be something that um could offer a kind of a, a, a potential for exploring things further um i mean it's hard to know how i mean i know for example you know early 18th century portraiture um in Ireland um you know there was a kind of a for catholic women and irish uh, catholic women and protestant women uh, would represent themselves sort of differently there was different ways of thinking about dress and how you might represent yourself in dress and that could sort of signify your kind of religious confession and so on and but I think there there must be something there that could be explored further in terms of, um, you know, the Catholic and Protestant home perhaps, or, or the Quaker Presbyterian, all the different denominations that, you know, um, uh, you know, I I can't really offer anything more on it, only just to sort of uh, highlight the fact that there, you know, Sarah Foster is working on this for the Quaker community, and that you know maybe there's somebody out there would like to. Pursue a PhD in that
1: uh, along the line, and if so, they can contact you. Um, well, Conor, this has been it's been wonderful chatting to you about this book, House and Home in Georgian Ireland: Spaces and Cultures of Domestic Life, just published by Four Courts Press. What's the next thing that you might be turning your attention to now that this volume has happily arrived in the real world?
0: Well, I suppose there's a couple of things. Uh, my um, my previous book was, uh, and I suppose my um, my first interest was in the building industry. So my previous book, which is called Building Reputations, um, Architecture and the Artisan, 1750 to 1830, um, that looked at the relationship of this building community to design. Um, I suppose to try and uh, complicate our understanding of the this sort of artisanal community and its relationship to design. I suppose the people who built houses are often seen as being kind of motivated purely by money you know builders as opposed to architects and I was was interested in in, in exploring the complexity there so I've been thinking, uh, I've been working on I suppose uh, a new large research project which would maybe explore that um, more specifically looking at uh, the sort of different styles of interior architecture that are prevalent in the 18th century uh, and the ways in which um, this sort of artisanal class um, both understands those uh, stylist i mean these stylistic labels are, of course are applied retrospectively but um, there is some understanding of um their distinction at the time and I suppose i'm interested in in understanding this the kind of epistemology of um uh, of artisanal um knowledge education and things like that um, and I've also just completed a long uh, article on women in construction in the 18th century, which will be later this year, um, in architectural history uh, journal, and um, that's an attempt to try and get to the bottom of what women might actually have done on the building site, and um, as a way of trying to, you know, get past the um, what we would have liked them to have done, and <laughs> to understand what they actually might have done. And so, looking at kind of guild records and the kind of complexities of that, and um, yeah, a lot of working in brickfields and cleaning and sweeping and and that kind of thing, I should expect. So, there are the two things I would
1: point to. Great, Connor. Well, Connor, it's been great talking to you today about this new book, House and Home in Georgian Ireland: Spaces and Cultures of Domestic Life, just published, as I said, by Four Courts Press. Um, and thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks to everyone else for tuning in today. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast.